Amen. Well, hey, my name is Michael, and I'm so glad to be with you guys this evening. Isn't it so cool that we get to celebrate baptism like that? Like, praise God, right? That's going from death to life. People who've chosen to respond to that call to follow Jesus. That's amazing. We're going to do more next week. It's our four-year anniversary, like Zach said earlier, and I'm so excited for it. I'm also excited to share from the text tonight. We've got a big chunk, and there's a lot in here, and I believe that God has something for each and every one of us tonight from his word. I fully believe that, and I hope that as we walk through this text that you would receive it with an open heart. But before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about setbacks. Um, so I had, I had camp season recently. I'm a student guy. I do student ministry. And camp season is a blast, okay? What that means is we go away, you know, for a weekend, and there's a ton of prep on the front end, and then you go hard for like three days straight, 72 hours of just high-octane craziness, and I got sick, like super sick. Um, after our high school camp, I had a fever for four days straight. It was great. Um, I, was, I was like curled up into the couch. And I don't know what it is about us men, but, and maybe you're not like this, but for me, I'm such a baby when I get sick. I like became one with the couch at some point. And here's what made things worse. My wife Lexi was sick too. Yeah, so who's going to take care of who, right? You have to figure that out as you're both sick. And I was so nervous for middle school camp because high school's got some energy, but middle schoolers, Gabe knows, Gabe knows, right? There's some energy there. And so I was a little nervous, like gearing up for it, and I was worried about the camp a little bit. But, but as we were getting ready for it, we were praying, and we headed out there, and and I loaded up on some Dayquil, I'll be honest. <laughs> I was like, let's push through this. And can I just say that God did some amazing stuff? He really did. The things that I heard back from cabin time of students sharing and going deeper, um, it's just such a joy to hear. And God did something in the midst of that setback of sickness. Because it could have been easy for me to be like just focused on that and disappointed in that. But the reality is, is that God was doing something in the midst of that. right? And I, I think that's true about a lot of things in our life. Have you noticed that? That the way that we deal with our setbacks in life, they kind of reveal where we're at in our faith. Whenever we're dealing with an issue, what happens is how we react to it, how we respond to it, it's an indicator of where we're at. And it could be something like a financial issue. Maybe you were saving up for something and that one little part on your car broke. You know what I'm talking about? That part that cost exactly the same amount as you were saving for. Why? Right? Right? Or maybe it's an issue at work where you were working really hard for that promotion and you got passed up for somebody else. Maybe it's with your kids. Your kids are turning out more like you than you wish. <laughs> I pray every day that my kids don't end up like me, they end up like my wife, right? Like there's, there's that tension of parenting. Or maybe it's a tension in marriage or a relationship where you feel like you're fighting all the time and you can't remember a time when things were smooth and when we just got along. There's setbacks that we experience. There's also personal tragedy that we experience. There's social tragedy that we've seen even this week, right? And each one of these setbacks, they can cause us to freak out and to get anxious and to be worried. But what I want to say today is that those setbacks could really be a set up. I think that's what the text teaches tonight that we're going to see. And I think that that's what God's word is for us today is that these kingdom setbacks, they're not really setbacks. They're going to be a kingdom win at some point. God's setting us up for something if we would just have eyes for it. 
And if we would just see it. And that's exactly what, what Jesus and his disciples are going through. He's going to tell them about some setbacks that are coming. And he's going to say something. They're going to respond. He's going to say one again. They're going to respond again. And the idea that Luke wants his readers to know is this. Is that every single one of those setbacks are really a set up for the kingdom win. It's a setup for what God had planned all along. And so we're going to jump into the text. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. But we are in Luke 22, chapter 22, verse 21, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. It says this, But behold, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them could it be who was going to do this? And a dispute also arose among them as to who was going to be regarded as the greatest. And they said to him, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors or everybody's friend. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who's greater for you? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? In your world, it's the one who reclines at the table, but I'm among you as one who serves. And you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you all that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, we have two swords right here. And he said to them, it's enough. Let's pray and we'll jump into the text. God, we praise you today. We praise you today that the setbacks that we experience in life can really be a setup. And God, I thank you for your word that you've given us this gift that we can know about your story, that we can know about your gospel, and that we get to live that out. And Jesus, I pray that for everyone here, that they would see clearly who you are, that they would trust in who you are, and I pray that for myself as well. And we pray this in your son's name. Everybody said amen. Amen. All right. So the first one is our first betrayal. It's a betrayal from a guy named Judas. Here's what Jesus says. It's Thursday night. Thursday evening, right before Jesus goes to the cross. And he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper or about communion. If you were here last week, we talked about um, that that story, right? Where they're around the table and he says, this is my bread, this is my body that's broken for you. This is the cup of my blood that's poured out for you in a new covenant in my blood, a new way of relating to me. That's That's what happens around that table. And immediately at the close of that, he begins to inform his disciples and prepare his disciples for what's about to come. And what's about to come their way are some serious setbacks. There's going to be some things that they face that are going to be very challenging, one of which is a betrayer who is sitting around that table at that very moment. His name is Judas. 
We know it's Judas because earlier in Luke chapter 6, he's introduced as a traitor. And then in Luke 9, he's told that it's going to happen, that there will be a traitor. And then in Luke 22, we see him go to the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of, of Israel and say that he would turn over Jesus. So we know this is Judas. And he says, look, the betrayer, the one who betrays me is with me at the table. Now, this would have been particularly scandalous to this ancient Jewish audience. They, this would have been really upsetting. Have you noticed that when you have dinner with somebody, it kind of breaks down walls? When you eat a meal with somebody, it like starts to, you get bonded, you become friends. It's a way that you connect. And for us, if you could imagine someone coming over to dinner at your house who ultimately was your betrayer, that would be violating, right? And for them, it was even worse because for them, eating dinner together, this idea of table fellowship was very sacred. And it meant a deeper bond of friendship than what we can probably picture today. And so the idea that this person was at the table would have been vile to the disciples. It would have been upsetting internally, especially because they just spent three years together. And so they hear about this betrayer. But even though this setback's coming, we see that it's really a set up because of what Jesus says. He says this, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Meaning, it's all a part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Jesus is in control. He stays in control through every single event in this Passion Week leading up to the moment when he dies. He's in control. He's been in control of human history before then, and he's in control of human history today. That's the idea, is that nothing is happening outside of his plan. And then he says about Judas, he says, Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He's sad for Judas. He's lamenting something. Now, this, this should make your head hurt, okay? Because it makes my head hurt. Um, and we call this at Vintage Grace an inevitable tension. I love inevitable tensions, all right? It's value number five. We talk about it as a church. And the reason why I love it is because it has helped me immensely in my faith since coming here. And it's, the value is this, to embrace inevitable tensions. And there's one present in this text because I don't know if you've noticed, but God planned and determined for this to happen, and yet Judas is still at fault. Is your head hurting yet, right? Like, it's a God freeze. You guys heard that expression, right? Where you slip the slurpee, or the, sip the slurpee, right? Until your brain hurts and feels like it's going to fall out of your head. That's what happens sometimes when we think about God in this way, right? Where we see these two concepts that seem totally opposed to one another. But here's the issue. For us, it seems paradoxical. For us, we take issue with it. But for some reason, in the biblical text, the authors don't seem to find an issue with it. It's two sides of the same coin for them. This idea that there is God's total control over human history, his sovereignty, and human moral responsibility in the midst of that. Now, how exactly that works together? I don't know. It's a tension. It's a tension in the text, but it's present in the text. And what that does is it leads us to worship and it leads us to thankfulness. I had a youth pastor in my life growing up who said this. He's like, look, if your eight pound, six ounce brain could understand an infinite God, we would have a problem. 16 year old me was about that. Like, <laughs> that made a lot of sense. But as, as, we, as we mature in our faith, it's important for us to press into these things. It's important for us to press into the tension and to explore it because God is who he is and we need to worship him for who he is, but it's worth pressing into. 
It's worth having deep talks with friends at night about it. It's worth talking to your life group leader about it. It's worth talking to a friend about it because the wrestling that happens within these tensions is a part of our OST or our ongoing spiritual transformation. So I wanted to encourage you with that, that there are things in the text that are going to be a tension, but that doesn't mean that God isn't who he said he is. And so after he spells out this idea that there's going to be a betrayer and he says, hey, look, it's all a part of the plan. This is how it was going to be from the beginning, and it's going to follow through. Then the disciples, who I really empathize with at this point, like, I'd probably be doing the same thing. They start arguing with each other, right? They're like, where were you between the hours of 1 and 3 on Wednesday, Gabe? And Gabe's like, I don't know. Where were you between the hours of 1 and 3 on Wednesday? And they start arguing about this idea of who's it going to be? Who's the betrayer? And they start fighting and arguing. And like a bunch of adolescents, after arguing about that, they turn their attention to who's the greatest. Does that make sense? It's like, well, if I can't figure out who's the worst, surely I know who's the greatest. This guy, right? And they start arguing about that. Man, I can just imagine Jesus at this point. He's sitting at dinner with his friends, it's their last moments together, right? Before they go into the garden, before the betrayal. He's just like, you guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. And so Jesus lovingly corrects them. Here's what he says. He says, the king's of Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, or everybody's friend. What he's doing is he's setting up a contrast here. Referring to Gentile leadership would have probably brought to mind the Romans or some oppressive government that they're dealing with. But for us today, has anybody had a bad boss? Yes? I, I have a great boss right now. <laughs> Camera. But I've had some bad bosses. It's a real thing, right? Where there's people who are in leadership who function with a domineering style of leadership who function with an oppressive style of leadership. And they use that to lord it over people, to get their way. And not only that, but they go around pretending to be everybody's friend. Like, yeah, I'm the benefactor. Maybe you've had a manager like that. Maybe you've had a leader like that in your life. Jesus is addressing that direct issue, and he's saying, look, hey, not so with you. That's not what we do in this family. That's not who we're going to be as the kingdom of God. That's not the style of leadership we're going to have. We're not going to be domineering. We're not going to lord it over people. We're not going to be fake. Instead, this is what we're going to do. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, or the one with the least amount of rights. And the leader as the one who serves. For who's greater? The one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the guy who's leaning back getting the grapes put in his mouth? That's how it is in, in society, right? We look at it that way. But Jesus looks at it and says, no, we're going to reverse that. Instead, I am among you as one who serves. I think we can't underemphasize the gravity of what he's saying. That our Savior, God, he put on flesh and he came and he lived this perfect life and was willing to serve sinful men. In John 13, John 13 is, is the same story about, about this Passover dinner. And what we see in John 13 is as they're coming into the house, Jesus, here's what he does. He picks the lowest job that any servant would have. It was so low that even Jewish servants wouldn't do it. They're like, no, we're not going to make them do it. We'll make a different one do it. It was so low. Here's what it was. It was washing their feet. 
He washed the feet of his disciples. I don't want to get too like PG-13 here with how gory it was, but like the streets were gross. Sewage didn't exist. Fill in the blank, okay? It was a bad job. And yet Jesus knelt down before the disciples and washed their feet. This is our Savior. This is our Jesus, who is the greatest and yet was willing to take on the form of a servant. That's what he wants them to know. He wants them to see this reversal. And it's imperative for them to see this reversal. Because they're going to have titles someday. They will. The the people he's sitting with, they're going to be leaders in the early church. They're going to be responsible. But what he needs them to do is not to be focused on their title, but to be focused on picking up a towel. Right? Like to be a servant. There's a guy in this room who earlier is a very great servant, and he went and wiped up some stuff on the ground over there. Just, that's what he does. He's a servant. He's also a leader at our church, right? There's people who are servants. Here's something that, that I really um, am not great at serving at. Do you, guys, do you guys not like cleaning your house? No, all of you do, right? You're all good Americans. Me, on the other hand, I'm only good at like three cleaning things. Um, one of them's vacuuming. And I am very meticulous, okay? Like, so before life group starts, I'm like, <laughs> getting everything lined up, right? And then you got to go back. You always finish on the backstroke, right? So that the carpet stands up all beautifully. I have issues, okay? Leave me alone. Is anybody here like me, though? Have the same thing? All right, come on. It's satisfying, right, to finish up with the perfect lines. And so while I'm doing that, my wife, Lexi, she's like, she can clean the whole house by the time I finish vacuuming. She's incredible at it. But the one thing neither of us really like to do is laundry. We're not fans of it. There's something about it that isn't fun. And there's something about towels that they always need to be cleaned. I don't get it, right? Maybe it's because you clean things with them. Anyway, so... My least favorite thing to do is laundry. But in the kingdom of God, what I can do to be a better husband is maybe to start doing laundry more or to be willing to clean the towels. And here's what I want you to know. Being a servant in in this kingdom of God doesn't have to be big things. It can be wiping up a puddle in the back of the room. It can be doing laundry for your wife. It could be listening to somebody when you have a long day and you really don't want to hear it, but they've had a rough day. That's a way of serving. There's small things that we can do, but when we do them, what it does is it communicates a value in the kingdom of God, which is this reversal of greatness. Because greatness is not determined by how many people serve you. It's determined by how you serve others. That's greatness. That's what it is in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus needs them to know because they're going to be in charge someday. Check this out. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. In other words, you stuck with me through it. You were there. The whole time, these last three years, you saw me get rejected. You saw people get healed. You saw us have nowhere to stay. You camped out with me. You were hungry with me. They went through everything with Jesus. They were faithful. That's faithfulness. And that faithfulness was rewarded. It was rewarded with a title. He says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you might eat and drink with me at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, exactly what's meant here with this whole judging and thrones thing is, is, is actually debated. It's a little debated. People are like not exactly sure. Here's, here's what I think the text is getting at. There is a future 
time at which the disciples will be leaders in Jesus's established kingdom, okay? So the kingdom exists in this already, not yet, meaning that it's already come, Jesus already showed up, and he's already done what he's done so that we might follow him, and yet there's still more to come. There's still a time when there's going to be a fullness of all things, and at that time, all of Israel is going to be gathered together, and these disciples are going to rule at some capacity. Some capacity. That's what judging means. It means there's some type of ruler. So we don't know exactly what it means, but what we do know is that they're going to be leaders, which emphasizes Luke's point about the towels. They need to be ready to serve. They need to be ready to lay aside their desire for a title and be willing to serve so that they can be ready for this type of leadership. Because there's a setback coming. Right? For them, their setback is they're arguing about greatness. And it's going to get worse as time goes on. But the set up is for the greatest movement in human history in the book of Acts. The explosion of the church. That's what they're being set up for. That's what Jesus has for them. And so it's imperative that they understand this idea. And then Jesus turns his attention to Peter. Now, Peter and I, we'd probably get along. But maybe not, because we'd be too similar. <laughs> you have friends like that. All right. So Peter and I, maybe we wouldn't get along. But he, he's sitting there, and, and Jesus is going to turn his attention to him and tell him about a setback that he's going to experience. And here's what he says. He's like, Simon, Simon. For those of you who don't know, Simon is Peter's original name. He was originally named Simon. And when Jesus met him, he's like, I'm going to call you Rocky. That's what Peter means. It means rock in Greek. So he's like, I'm going to call you Rocky. And so they become buddies, and he follows him around, and Rocky's there, and he's going for it, and he's following after Jesus, making mistakes, making good decisions. And Peter was the man, right? And yet, Peter was going to betray Jesus. He wasn't impervious to it. He wasn't perfect. He was going to fall. Here's what he says. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That you is actually plural. They use plural. You can see it on a, on a footnote probably in your Bible. It's a plural you. It's referring to a setback for all of the disciples. Satan has demanded to sift all of the disciples who are sitting there. And the, the picture here is kind of violent, right? It's like picking up a thing of wheat and smacking it against something to sift out whatever was in it. The idea was that he thought he could shake out their faith. But Jesus' grace sustained them in that. He sustained them. He prayed for them. It says that, I prayed for you that your faith isn't going to fail all the way. And that when you return back, here's what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen your brothers. Because they're going to need it. Because they're going to leave me too. But I want the grace that's revealed in you to be shown in this. And that's what happens. That's what Peter ends up doing. And here's, here's what I love. Like As you guys read through the Bible, you get into 1 John it talks about something that Jesus does. First John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, that Jesus advocates for us. In other words, he sits before the Father praying for you and for me. We have this type of sustaining. We have this type of grace as a follower of Jesus. He does that for us. He prays for us. How good is our God that he would do that? That's incredible. So he prays for us. He's praying for Peter. And Peter, being Peter, gets a little like giddy up. And he's like, no way, dude. This isn't going to happen. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Okay. He, I don't think he's taking Jesus seriously. You know how when Jesus says something, it happens? Yeah, he kind of missed that part. And so he's like, I got this. We're going to go for it. 
And Jesus, again, lovingly looks at him and says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He says, look, your, your denial is imminent. Your betrayal is imminent. It's going to happen. And you're going to experience a setback. You're going to turn away from me before the night is over. It's Thursday night. He's going to betray him before the night's over, before the night's done. And we know this happened. We know later in Luke that this does happen. We know later in Luke that the disciples do turn from Jesus and they, they desert him, all except for one. But what we also see at the end of the Gospels is the disciples being restored and Peter being restored as they see the risen Jesus and they're emboldened by faith and they're emboldened through the Holy Spirit. It's God's grace in the midst of this, but it's not without the setback. So there's a setback that's coming, but it's really a set up for Peter and the disciples to go through this crucible to where they would come out refined and ready to lead. That's what they needed, to be willing to pick up the towel. And so after he says this opposition that's going to come from Peter, he directs their attention to opposition that's going to come from the world. The world's actually going to have a setback for you. The world's going to come against us. Here's what he says. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? I said, no, nothing. We didn't lack anything. This is looking back to Luke 9 and Luke 10 when Jesus sends out his disciples on their like, first mission on their own. He's like, look, here's, here's what's going to happen. You don't need a knapsack. You don't need a bag. You don't need any money. You don't need your shoes. You don't need your cloak. Just go for it. And he sends them. And they go for it. And they spread the good news of the kingdom. And they come back. And they're all excited. They're like, Jesus, this was so cool. And this is what happened the first round. And now Jesus is saying, hey, look, you know how I took care of you, right? You know how you trusted in my faithfulness, right? Okay, you need to keep doing that, but here's what's going to be a little bit different about this time. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak to buy one. He's like, look, things are going to get hard. They're legitimately going to be facing death from this point out. You know how Peter said he was willing to go to prison and death? Yeah, the disciples end up doing that, all except for one they all end up going to prison or death. That's what they're going to face is is direct opposition. And Jesus is saying, you need to be ready for that. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, go sell your Patagonia jacket and buy yourself a nine mil at the sporting goods store. That's not what he's getting at, all right? So for those of you excited in here, like, all right, giddy up, let's go. Like, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying to literally grab your sword. He's talking about a, a metaphorical preparation for opposition. And here's why. A, that would contradict Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel. That's not what he taught. He he didn't teach them to pick up swords. He taught them to pick up their prayers, right? And then then B, here's the other issue. When we see the early church in the book of Acts, they're a non-militant, non-violent group armed only with prayer and the Holy Spirit. That's all they needed. They didn't need swords. They didn't need AK-47s. They were fine. And then C, the reason why we know that this isn't, this isn't an accurate thing, the idea of like, all right, let's go get our swords, is because he rebukes them in verse 38. We're going to get there in a minute. But he's like, you guys are missing it. It's not about the sword. What it is about is the idea that Jesus is going to be rejected. And as followers of Jesus, you're going to be rejected. It's, it's just a reality of what it is. The world has made up its mind about Jesus. And we're going to receive that opposition. 
It's just a part of the, the fact of following Jesus. But he's asking us to be ready and to rely on him. And here's why we can trust him. He says it in the next part. He's like, look, this is all going to happen because this scripture must be fulfilled in me. He's saying, look, it's all part of the plan. He says, and he was numbered with the transgressors or criminals or outlaws, however you want to put it. He was numbered with the bad guys. For what was written about me has its fulfillment. What he's doing here is he's referring to Isaiah 53, verse 12. And in that, in that um, chapter of Isaiah, it's called a servant song. It's about the suffering servant, the suffering hero that would come to save Israel, that would come to make things right. It's referring to Jesus. And it was written 700 years before this even happened. So he's saying, look, it's going to come to fulfillment. And it's not just a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah. It's a fulfillment of a plan that was set before the foundations of the earth. A plan that was set before the foundation of time. And it's about to be fulfilled in me. So yeah, things are going to get hard. But you need to trust in me. Because I have come to fulfill the plan of the Father. That's what he wants them to know. But then the disciples being the disciples, they're like, hey, Lord, look, we got two swords right here. They missed it. They missed it. We know, we know that he missed it because he says to them, hey, that's enough. It is enough or that's enough or just enough would be good. That's, that's what it means there. It's like, we're done. It's kind of a somber end to that last conversation, right? It's kind of sad. But here's what was happening. As Jesus is trying to explain to them that setbacks are coming. It's going to get hard. But he wanted them to know that those setbacks were for a setup. It was for a setup of this fulfillment right here. That Jesus would fulfill a promise that was made. That Jesus would make things right. But they missed the setup. They got hung up on the setback. And they got hung up on needing to grab a sword. And what we see in the text is that they eventually desert Jesus. They leave him. They missed it. But the good news is, is that every single one of those setbacks was really a set up. And when Jesus returns in glory, when he came back from the dead as the resurrected Christ, they responded to him as who he was. They got it. It clicked for them. Something changed in them. They received the Holy Spirit and they were empowered for mission and they went on to lead that movement that is the church. It was a setup the whole time. And Jesus was in control the whole time. And so the question for us tonight is this. How do we deal with setbacks in our life? What do we do when they happen? And, and I get it, it's hard. Setbacks are not easy. I don't want to minimize that idea, okay? I don't want to minimize the fact that we go through challenging things. I don't want to minimize the fact of social tragedy, like what happened this week in Florida. You guys hear about that? How many times is that this year? Already, in two months. It's crazy. There's brokenness in this world. But here's what we do as believers. And here's what we do as people of the kingdom of God. We are invited to bring healing into those spaces. We're invited to join with Jesus in the redemption of all things. Because he wants to do something in people's lives. He wants to do something in the lives of the people who suffered. He wants to do something in your life today, whatever personal tragedy you're facing, whatever financial issue you're facing, whatever parenting issue you're dealing with or marriage or your job. He wants you to look at that setback differently. He wants you to see it as a setup. 
And it can be a setup if we look at it through a new lens. So I want to I look at some stuff from the text that, that I think that, um, that helps us to look at these setbacks a little differently. And the first one's this. Jesus is in control. He's in control. He was in control that whole time. <laughs> he was in control while Judas was betraying him. He was in control while people were driving nails through his wrists. Jesus never lost control. This was all a part of the plan. I heard a pastor say this one time. He said, look, God doesn't need a perfect world to accomplish his perfect plan. If he did, wouldn't it look that way? But instead, he uses our brokenness. And instead, he uses our setbacks. Instead, we have a God of redemption who uses all these things in life and none of it is outside of his control. None of it is beyond him. The second layer to that is this. I think we've got to be a people who are more about our towel than our title. I think that's important. The, I was listening to a podcast one day. I, I'm such a podcast junkie. It's bad for me, but I love it. I was listening to this podcast, and the CEO of Home Depot was talking. And he's a believer. He loves Jesus. And here's what he said. When he came into Home Depot, he saw that the org chart looked a little weird to him. He's like, hey, wait a minute. Um, the CEO is on the top, and everybody's kind of below. What if we turn that upside down? And so what he did is he wanted to start servant leadership through his organization. So when he stepped into that job, what he did is he started to serve his direct reports, not lord over them, not oppress them. He started to serve them so that his direct reports would serve their direct reports, who would then serve theirs all the way up to the level of the customer. He brought servant leader into that organization. And I get it, man. Home Depot's not perfect, okay? But when I go in there and I can't tell the difference between a nut and a bolt, they help me. And they will walk me where I need to go to find the part that I need. Or at least they're supposed to. Um, But that's the heart behind servant leadership, right? That's the picture of a gospel, right? Is serving others. And he brought that into his business and it flourished. When I graduated from Jessup, here's what they did. As we walked across the stage, they gave every single one of us a towel. It didn't matter if you were a business major. It didn't matter if you were a creative arts major. It didn't matter if you were a ministry major. Each and every one of us got a towel with that verse on it from John 13 about Jesus washing people's feet because they wanted us to know that you're being sent out into this world as servant leaders. You're going to bring the kingdom wherever you go. I love that. I think that we can be a people defined by that. I think leadership in your home, leadership in your family, leadership at your workplace, leadership in the church, I think it can look like this. When we're willing to wipe up the puddle in the back of the room, right? That's what he's invited us into. And the last one is this. I think it's the most challenging one. It's looking for the setup. It's looking for the setup. And here's why I think it's hard. I think sometimes we don't have a lens for it. We just don't see it. And it's hard to see it because the setbacks are real. The setbacks are painful. And when we're going through them, it can be really hard to see what God's doing in the midst of it. It can be really hard to believe that there's even a setup going on. But what I think we're invited to do as people of God, as believers in this kingdom, is to look for the setup. As I say, where's God at work at this? And, and here's what I think. I think the setup is the gospel. I think that's what it is. It's this great setup. 
that was started from before the foundations of time, that Jesus would come, he would live this perfect life, and he would die for people who rejected him, for people who were far off from him, so that we might have relationship with him, so that we might have a changed life, so that we might find joy in Jesus that we know we can't find anywhere else. That's what he's done for us. That's who he is. And the gospel isn't just for people who aren't saved. You guys know that? It's for believers too. Believers need the gospel. I need the gospel every day. I need it to shape me. I need it to form me. We need to be reminded of what God has done and what God is doing because that's what helps us to see our setbacks through the lens of the set up. We need the gospel every day. The gospel is also for those who don't know Jesus. And if you're here tonight, and if you don't know him, the gospel's for you. And my question for you is this. How many more setbacks are you going to let just be that? How many more times are you going to let the diagnosis? Are you going to let the marital strife? Are you going to let the financial issues? Are you going to let the parenting stuff just become a setback and not see the gospel work in it? You can step into that. You can make that decision tonight. You can decide to say, Jesus, I don't want to look at my life through just this lens of setbacks and emptiness that goes nowhere, but I want to see who you are in the midst of my suffering. I want to see who you are in the midst of every setback that I deal with. And here's his promise. He's going to show himself to you. And he's willing to save you. That's who he is. That's what he's done. And it's what he offers every single one of us in a relationship with him. And if that's something that you want, if you want that, if you want your setbacks to stop just being setbacks and you want to step into what God has for you, you can do that. All it takes is responding to him in faith. And what that looks like is it's a prayer. It's a prayer where you start by saying, God, I know I've messed up. I know I need you. And I want you to come into my life and change me from the inside out so that I would see what you're doing and that I would follow what you're doing. And he's faithful to do that. That's what he does. And that's what we celebrate through communion. So I'm going to invite up the ushers right now, and we're going to take communion as a church. If you, if you feel like you want to make that decision tonight, if you feel like you want to do that, here's my encouragement to you. I'd say write it down on your Connect card. I'd say talk to somebody who came with you. Talk to somebody who brought you. We're going to have a prayer team up here tonight after service, and they're here to pray with you. They're here to be with you and to talk to you. That's what they want to do. Talk to a pastor. Talk to somebody in your life. Because this life wasn't meant to be lived alone. And it wasn't meant to be lived just through this lens of setback, but it was meant to be lived through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the grace of God. And so I invite you into that. Right now what we're gonna do is we're gonna take communion and communion is a way of remembering what Jesus has done. It's a way of letting that form us from the inside out as we remember who he is, what he's done, and we reflect on what he's doing right now. And so if you're a believer, I want, I want you to grab the elements and hang on to them. We're going to take them together. And if you've yet to treasure Christ, if you've 
yet to make that decision, just let them pass by. It's okay. No one's going to be weirded out. No one's going to look at you funny. Like, it's better if you don't because it's just meaningless until it has that meaning for you. So I'm going to pray over the elements and the ushers are going to pass them out and then we're going to worship together and we're going to sing about this father whose arms are open wide to receive us. So Jesus, we thank you and we praise you and we're grateful for who you are and for what you do. And God, I pray tonight as we worship you, as we reflect on who you are, that we would see you as that father, that we would see you as those loving arms that are open for each and every one of these people here tonight. So Jesus, we thank you We praise you and we worship you. And it's in your name that we pray. Everybody said.